to bring some background, this letter, this letter is the Church of Corinth, is written by Paul. And the Church of Corinth was founded by Paul on his second missionary journey. So Paul goes into Corinth, he establishes a church, and it goes so well that he really stays there a year and a half. He becomes their founding pastor, essentially, brings the faith to them, and then eventually he departs as he's raised up the church. But if you read this letter that Paul's writing back to them, there's a lot of stuff going on. And he addresses a lot of things from incest to lawsuits to idols to food to head coverings and all the way to the resurrection. But he starts this letter addressing the topic of church leadership and the division that the church in Corinth was experiencing because of it. So if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll look at the beginning of Paul's letter, and we're going to start in verse 10. He says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. So Paul is written to the church because they've got issues forming. They've got these fractions that are starting to splinter, and he references these four fractions. The first is the, the pro-Paul fraction. So Paul being their founding pastor, founding person, that first one that brought the gospel to them, some people in the church are saying, we're going to follow Paul no matter what Paul says. It's all about Paul. Whatever he leads us to, that's where we're going to go. But now we've got a second fraction forming, and that's the pro-Apollos group. So Apollos came shortly after Paul left when he came to Corinth, but Apollos was different. Apollos was a zealous preacher, and he focused on how Jesus fulfilled the scriptures. You see, he was most likely exciting, he was passionate, he was quick-witted, because he was always up for debate. He was always looking for Jews that he could talk to to describe to them how Jesus is the Messiah, how he answers the scripture. So Apollos would have been a great and fun pastor sitting underneath because he was always up for the debate and was passionate. But then we have a third fraction that's even showed up, and that's the pro-Cephas, or Peter. See, Peter was the head of the church in Jerusalem, the original Jews that are following. And he brought the gospel to the Jews and what Jesus, how he was the Messiah. But see, Corinth was mostly a Gentile church, so it's full of Gentiles, where Peter was the leader of the church that mostly focused on Jews. You see, this would have been a really a, a break because you would have had the pro-Peter people being the traditionalists, the ones that said, hey, we're going to follow hard to the Jewish laws, the customs, because, hey, you know, Peter walked with Jesus. And if what Peter says this, we want to be like this. And so we had another fraction forming there. But then the fourth fraction was the ones say, I follow Christ, which you think would be the ones that are like, yeah, that's the one we should be. But Paul's really calling them out as well because they're not saying that we're just following Christ. What they're really saying is, I'm holier than thou. I have it together. I'm just going to follow Jesus, and I've got it. And we all know those people who seem to hold themselves higher than everybody else. But what Paul is really saying is, guys, whether you're pro-Paul, pro-Peter, pro-Apollos, or pro-Jesus, you're picking sides. You're picking who you're rooting for like you pick sports teams. He's saying, you really have taken the gospel and, the, and what the crucifixion has done, and you've brought it down to being nothing more than 
just a picking of sides. But Paul says in verse 13, he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you can say that you are baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanos. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul's calling a timeout to the church. He's saying, are you serious? Have you really reduced what Jesus has done down to picking sides? So he urged them to be unified under Jesus in the gospel and not to be unified under anyone else or anything else. So he sets them straight about the reminder of who really died on the cross. It wasn't him. It wasn't Apollos. It wasn't Peter. It's not any preacher that's going to come, any teacher that's going to come in the future. It's only about Jesus. The one who died on the cross was Jesus, and he's the one we should be united under. See, we even read from historical accounts that this fraction had gotten so bad that Apollos had left Corinth. You see, when we read this, we kind of think that maybe Paul and Apollos were competing, but they weren't. They were friends. They were working together. It got so bad that he left and wouldn't come back until Paul wrote this letter to Corinth. He said, we're not picking sides. You're not following me. We follow Jesus. He went to Crete until the letter came, and after that he came back because Apollos wanted no part in anything that divided or took away from the focus on who Jesus was and his crucifixion. See, Paul and Apollos both independently knew that any issues that divide the church drains the cross of Christ and of its power. So the first point, the most important I want to tell you this morning, is that church leadership's important, but it's not as important as the gospel. And I'll make that clear. Church leadership is important, but it's not as important as the gospel. So as we talk about this change in structure, regardless of which side you sit on, if you're pro-current structure, you're pro-eldership structure, it should have no impact on our focus on the gospel or our desire to make disciples. If you feel strongly that one model is better than the other, I want to say, great. I'm happy that you're invested and care about the leadership of our church because it's important. But I want to make sure that your feelings and your opinions on what structure is best aren't nearly as strong as our love and our desire for the gospel. So that being said, where do I stand? It really doesn't matter where I stand. I support the move to an eldership structure for one reason. I think that the structure will support us and then maximize our efforts of advancing the gospel. Jim Mike, our pastor from quite a few years ago, said this all the time. He said, I will do anything short of illegal or immoral to tell someone about Jesus. I think it's true, but we got to change it. I think we should do anything short of immoral to tell someone about Jesus. I'm okay with the illegal. And I'll tell you what, the church is too. You want to know why? Because every time you tithe, we send money across the world to tell people about Jesus where it's illegal to tell people about Jesus. So I'm totally cool with the illegal. So this debate over what our leadership structure is going to be, it's not a new one. This is not unique to our church at this time. And it will continue to be debated until Jesus comes back. 
See, I probably hold a different view than a lot of your leadership here. I don't believe that leadership structure of the church is prescriptive, which means I don't think there's a way we have to do it. I believe that corporate church structure, for the most part, is subscriptive, which means I think there are many different ways to do it and to do it well. I think we can create that right structure, which is unique to every church and in its situation, to advance the gospel. And I think our structure will change over time. See, we never see Jesus instruct on exactly how to do it, but I also do think the apostles were spirit-led when they made decisions. But I know that church leadership is important, and it needs to be enhanced, because when we do church leadership the right way, it enhances our gospel efforts. We see in Acts uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, in the early form of the church, it says, In those days when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, among them complained that they... Hebraic Jews, because they're complained against the Hebraic Jews, because their widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered, all the disciples together, and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And if you skip down to verse 7, it says, After that, so the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So what I see here in church leadership, and the reason I don't believe it to be prescriptive, is there's unique challenges to every church, and we address those. But the key to addressing them is so that we don't lose focus on the gospel and making disciples. That if we create structure around our church that advances that, we see the word of God spread and our numbers grow. See, I believe an elder structure will maximize the efforts of the gospel and disciple-making for a couple reasons. I believe a move to eldership in this structure will align our church's leadership structure under the leadership of those who are responsible for our spiritual decisions, saying, we want our leaders who are driving which way we go spiritually to be the ones that drive everything down from there. In the past, we've operated under a strong executive board structure, which means the business board of the church determined and executed the vision of our church alongside with the senior pastor. But then we underwent a constitution revision a few years ago, which took the deacon board, which is supposed to be our spiritual leaders in our current structure, and raised them up and began to re-empower them. And I think because of that, we've seen great strides in our church and our direction. Now, I want to thank such men as Dave Meadows and Dave Fetty and Jerry Mason, and they've worked countless hours over the last 25 to 30 years making and modifying our church leadership structure to meet our ever-changing needs. See, one thing about the church is it never looks the same. Our church doesn't look the same today as it did in 1990, 2000, 2010. Things are always changing, and we need to be moving and changing our leadership so that we can advance the gospel to the best possibility. And I believe this move will begin to do that. I believe the move to eldership structure will also bring clarity and continuity of leadership. Currently, we have confusion at times over who's in charge. We've got a very big constitution that has a lot of roles, responsibilities, and, and delineation of roles, but a lot of times topics that we have to deal with cross boundaries. And we take time trying to figure out who has to make the decision. You make it here, then you make it here, and then we'll get to this point. 
And it slows us down and takes weeks or even months to make certain decisions because we don't have clear structure. And I know that if our church leadership has confusion over leadership, then I'm sure our church body does too. But being under an eldership, it will bring responsibility of ultimately every leadership decision to one board because they will oversee all areas of the church. So we've got a question or decision, it ultimately rises up to the same people saying, what do we do? Where do we go? Where are you taking us? But I also believe continuity of leadership is important. From year to year and from pastor to pastor, things change. But each year, right, and we currently now, we reshuffle the deck. We start new leadership over and over again. And this rotation leadership has benefits, but also has drawbacks. As we begin to build and to do things a certain way and have a vision going one direction, we change the boards again. And we got to either get that new people up to speed on this, or we lose a lot of our driving force of people who are behind those things. Eventually, Tony's not going to be the pastor here forever, correct? Correct. He's, he's admitted it. He hasn't told us the date, but I think it's a long ways off. But when you have a strong senior leader and he departs, you lose identity of your church. And I believe a strong seasoned elder board will know our church and know it well. So when that time comes that Tony either retires or is called home, then we know which way we're going. We can hire the next pastor. We can move in the right direction because it doesn't stop and pause. It just slows down for a short time, and then we keep moving. You know, one time I heard someone told me, they bragged to me, and they said, well, our church is elder-led. Well, they were bragging on their church, and they were taking a dig at us. See, their badge of honor was being elder-led. It was a prideful title they wore. But I'll tell you this. I don't care if our church or your church is led by elders, deacons, bishops, priests, councils, or by the congregation. They're all meaningless unless they're led by the Spirit and following the teaching of Jesus and making disciples. So our identity in our church should not be based on our leadership structure or our bylaws, but on our, but on our adherence to Scripture and our zeal for making more disciples. So I ask that first question, who is a church? Our identity should not be caught up in what our corporate structure is. It should be caught up in our disciple-making and advancing the name of Jesus. But I'm not going to let you off that easy this morning because they say it's not a good sermon unless you make it personal or get personal with people. So talking about church leadership structure, kind of boring, and I think we'd have a wasted Sunday if that's all the time we spent on this morning. So I'm going to ask you this question. Who are you? Where is your identity found? A few weeks ago, Dave Medley shared his message on the Samaritan woman, and he challenged us to consider what labels that we find ourselves under. And this morning, I want to dig deeper into that. So the question I'm asking you is, what label are you finding your identity in? Or what event or what characteristic are you letting define you? So ask yourself this question, who am I? See, we all have a label. Most of us have lots of labels. The problem is we let Satan convince us that we're nothing more than a label. And that label is not true. It says in John 10, 10, the thief, which is Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And Satan has been and will continue to use your label against you. He's begging you to find more of your identity in that label 
then you are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, and old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. So I want you to reflect and ask yourself, what label are you wearing? Where are you finding your identity more in than Christ? Is it being a mother or a father? Or maybe you're wearing a label of infertility. Is your label of success? Or do you carry the weight of failure? Do you have the pressing, crushing feeling of trying to be the perfect child? Or are you mom and dad's disappointment? Maybe you look at yourself and you say, I'm ugly, I'm fat, I'm nothing. Maybe you're living under the identity of someone who's been betrayed. Or maybe you weigh under the identity of being the adulterer. Maybe you've got the label of an addict or an alcoholic. Maybe you're living in the label of being a victim. Maybe, maybe you have a label, an identity, and a diagnosis or a condition. So we've all been assigned a label at some point. Sometimes we're given a label by someone else, or sometimes we give it to ourselves. So here's where I get personal. I got a label too. A label probably most of you won't ever guess. I struggle with the label of being dumb. Being dumb, really? What most of you don't know is I had to learn disability growing up. I was dyslexic. So Satan has told me my entire life, you're dumb. Don't let anybody see it. So I can wallow in that, and I can sit in that all my life and say, I'm dumb. But Satan didn't do that to me. Thankfully, Christ showed me more than that. But I know Satan's not done with me. Because he uses that label against me every day. People would look at me and say, well, Jeremiah, you're successful. You're married, kids, you got a good job. Satan's using the label against me. He says, Jeremiah, work harder. Chase the dream harder. Put more hours in at work. Drive the nice car. Do this, do that. Don't let people see that you're dumb. Don't let them see it. It's going to crack at some point. It's a lie. It is a lie. It's a lie from hell. But I'm going to talk to you someone that has a label as well. And his name's Lazarus. There you go, Roy, making the turn. Do you know what label Lazarus was given? Dead. When I say dead, not just a little dead. It wasn't like Jesus came and did CPR on him and brought him right back. We're talking dead, dead. And you can find the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. It's probably Jesus' most famous miracle. See, Lazarus is a good and close friend of Jesus, but he'd gotten sick, and he died. When I say Dead, dead, four days. If you have an old King James Version, Mary says, what is it, was it, Patty? Oh, but Lord, he stinketh. So stinketh is dead, dead. So as I thought about this living under labels, and the story of Lazarus kept coming to mind for reasons. You see, Lazarus had been given a label that he could not get rid of by himself. He needed Jesus to take that label away from him. So I've got good news for you this morning. So we have another thing in common with, with Lazarus. That same Jesus who stood outside his tomb and called and said, Lazarus, come out. 
is the one stands outside your tomb right now. And he said, Jeremiah, come out. Tony, come out. He didn't whisper it. He says he did in a loud voice. He screamed and yelled for Lazarus to come out, to go from death to life. Jesus is standing outside your life right now, calling. He's saying, come out of the tomb. Romans 6, 4 says, For we died and we were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ is raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also live new lives. So Jesus called. But one thing people forget is Lazarus had to take action. Lazarus could have sat in that tomb hearing Jesus call and says, I'm good. I'm going to stay buried in what I'm in right now. I'm dead. I'm not good for anything. But he chose to come out. And that's the same choice you have made. It was Christ calling in your life. If you've heard him calling over and over again, but you've refused to come out of the tomb, or maybe you're hearing it for the first time, that Jesus is calling you out of death into life, you have a choice to make. You can step out of that tomb. Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm. Then do not let yourselves be burdened again by your yoke of slavery. Maybe you have walked out of that tomb. Maybe you're like me, you walked out of the tomb, you heard Christ call your name, and you said, I'm a new creature. But maybe you didn't take the second step after that. You see in the scripture, it says, Lazarus, come out and take off the grave clothes. So maybe Christ has called you out, and you know you're alive, but you're okay living in your label. I know Christ has done it all. I know he saved me, but I want to stay a victim. I have to fight that every day. I have to fight putting back on the grave clothes and going back and acting like a dead man. You see, Jesus has cured every ounce of sin and shame in your life. But there's a verse in the Bible that says, like dog to vomits return to our own ways. A lot of times we want to go back and put the dead man's clothes back on. So Galatians 3, 26, 28 says, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who be united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ. Like putting on new clothes, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. He's saying, there's no labels. There's no more labels anymore. If you've accepted Christ, your label is gone, and you have a choice to leave the grave clothes behind in the grave and move forward. You do not have to stay dead. You don't have to act dead. You don't have to smell dead. You don't have to keep faking being dead because you are alive if you accepted Christ. The good news is, you're not alone. Jesus says, take those clothes off of him. So if you're here this morning, and you haven't figured out how to get the grave clothes off of you, we're here. You've got friends and family, pastors and deacons, that say, let me help you unwrap the grave clothes. Let me help you move out of death into life. He had people there to help him. So this morning as I close, I want to ask you the question of, who are you? Where are you finding your identity? Are you tired? Are you tired of carrying around the same weight? Are you tired of keeping putting back on the same grave clothes over and over and over again? Or are you ready to leave them behind? So let's pray.